This is Democracy on the Move. Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, February 27, 2022. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. In this episode, congressional candidate Marcus Flowers, the likely Democrat to run against Marjorie Taylor Greene this November, drops by to talk about his motivations, the issues he cares about, and his campaign. But before we get started, I have an announcement from the League of Women Voters. To vote in the April municipal elections, get registered now. Deadline to register here in Missouri is March 9. Check your own state for your deadline to register. Request your absentee ballot now if you will not be able to vote in person on Election Day. The League of Women Voters of Metro St. Louis wants every voice to be heard in elections and is here to help. If you have any questions about elections, how to register, or how to request an absentee ballot, ask the League. You can contact the St. Louis chapter of the League of Women Voters at lwvstl.org or call the League Voter Hotline at 314-961-6869. There's no time like the present, so do this right away. So today we're joined by U.S. Congressional candidate Marcus Flowers. Marcus is running for the 14th District in the beautiful state of Georgia. The current occupant of the 14th District seat is Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has made quite a name for herself on the extremist edge of the political spectrum. As a Democrat, Marcus has his work cut out for him, but he's off to a powerful start. In the December 31st FEC filing, his campaign posted receipts of nearly $4.7 million, which among a field of eight primary candidates in both the Republican and Democratic camps, puts him second only to Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has posted just shy of of $7.5 million. Marcus's next closest competitor is Democratic candidate Holly McCormick, coming in at just about $1.3 million. So Marcus's platform includes a focus on real kitchen table issues like jobs and the economy, rural broadband, veteran services, and a commitment to transparency and anti-corruption. Marcus served as an active duty member of the U.S. Army, followed, uh, followed by more than 20 years as a contractor or official for the State Department and Department of Defense. His values, as stated on his website, include loyalty, duty, honor, respect, service, integrity, unity, courage, and fierce love of America and its Constitution. In an interview appearing in the Cobb County Courier, he has made it clear that he will not accept corporate PAC money, preferring instead to run a transparent campaign taking individual donations averaging about $20. So, Marcus, I hope I did you justice with that introduction, and uh, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Dan. That sounds just about right. That's uh, everything that I stand for, all spelled out for our constituents in here in northwest Georgia to see. Okay. Well, uh, and you're not new to government, as I mentioned in, in, the, in the introduction there. You've joined the Army at the age of 18, and ever since then, in one capacity or another, you've been involved in the workings of government. But you've never been a politician, which I suspect is a whole different ballgame altogether. So can you give us some background on yourself and why you're running for a U.S. congressional seat? Well, you know, 
Dan, and that's a good question. And, and you're right. I've never been a politician. I've never run for anything other than, you know, class president my 10th grade year, which, you know, I did win in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, but really for me at 18 years old, when I swore an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States, really what I've been doing for the last almost three decades, you know, and that's from, you know, humanitarian efforts in the Sudan, peacekeeping missions in the Balkans, uh, to a decade in combat zones in Iraq and Afghanistan, both in and out of uniform. So really just stated simply, service to this country has been my life. Uh, and it's something that I've enjoyed doing. And I always consider myself an apolitical person. What really drew me into this race, um, and I'll tell you that everybody has their own experience with January 6th, you know, what they were thinking, how it made them feel. But mine, it, it began in earnest for me when George Floyd was murdered at the knee of a police officer in the summer of 2020. Mm-hmm. You know, my granddaddy was a sheriff my, and a farmer, and my uncles were police captains. And I also had uncles who served in the military. And, you know, I knew that wasn't what America was supposed to look like. Over that same summer, mm-hmm. I saw the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene and several others starting a disinformation campaign, which probably really began prior to the 2016 elections. But I watched as that grew louder and louder. And it all culminated on January 6th, as I watched in horror as police officers were being beaten with an American flag and a Confederate battle flag was being paraded through our capital rotunda. You know, seeing an attempted coup on the heart of our democracy, that same democracy that my friends died for overseas, you know, I having sworn that oath to support and defend the Constitution, and I just couldn't stand by and watch that happen here. Mm-hmm. So on January 7th, I resigned my post as a government official and decided to jump into this race because I, I know what extremism and radicalization leads to. You know, my friends overseas, some who died by suicide bomber, bombers, mm-hmm. you know, improvised explosive device being left on the sides of the roads in Iraq and Afghanistan. Those things don't happen in a vacuum, mm-hmm. you know. Right. That type of radicalization always leads to unnecessarily unnecessary death and violence. Right. And I can't watch while people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and the radical right try and infect America with that same thing here. So again, I threw my hat in the day after January 6th. I called my supervisor and resigned to run against Marjorie Taylor Greene because I'd watched over the summer as she'd led a disinformation and misinformation campaign. And you know, the people here in Northwest Georgia didn't really have a choice because she ran unopposed in the general election. Right. And she basically swooped in and bought a primary, which is something that's really, you know, astounding. Mm-hmm. But now I think the people will have a choice this time. And that's a choice between chaos and someone who's served this country faithfully will fight back against corruption because that's something I've done my entire career. Mm-hmm. So okay, there you have it. Okay. That's why I'm mm-hmm. here. Well, those are really good, uh, strong, passionate reasons. And um, they're calling your candidacy your candidacy a long shot. And I'm just going to give you like uh, 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 an example of they. It's the Blue Tent website stated it like this. They said, quote, the 14th district is a deeply conservative place that has proven it would rather elect a lunatic than a Democrat, um, unquote. And so, indeed, if you look at the recent polling numbers for the 14th district, which is the northwestern part of the state of Georgia, Uh, And as reported by Cook, Republicans hold a 28-point advantage. And this is after the recent redistricting process from the 2020 census, which uh, took a chunk of a fairly blue county, that's Cobb County, 
and moved it from the 13th district into the 14th district. So, I mean, that bumped the numbers slightly in your favor, but still, you know, 28 points is, is a mountain to climb. So without giving away your secret sauce, uh, how do you plan to overcome this barrier? You know, I think that's really a unfair assessment of the people here in Northwest Georgia. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the people here are really kind, caring, and generous people. Mm -hmm. And that's the truth. I live here. I know the people here. And yes, a lot of them are Republicans or independents. And yes, our, our district has gotten bluer with redistricting. Mm -hmm. But here's something that people don't know. I get out and talk with people every day in this district. And I don't always know if I'm talking to a Republican, an independent, or a Democrat, but I can tell you this, 40%, a good 40%, maybe more, of the GOP are embarrassed by Marjorie Taylor Greene. Mm -hmm. They see her not doing anything for Georgians. They mm -hmm. see that she doesn't sit on committees because even her own party feels that she's too radical. Mm -hmm. People here see that. They want results. They want rural broadband. They want infrastructure. They want jobs. You know, they talk about housing, affordable housing here in our district. They talk about veteran homelessness. Now, Georgia's a huge veteran population here, and people are aware of what's going on, but they want someone to serve them, serve the needs of our district. And that's what I plan to do. Well, she's uh, she's favored to win the primary. I guess she has, I think, three other competitors there. And so far, she's favored to win the primary. So it does look like you will be competing directly with her in November, uh, assuming that, that your your lead that you have at this point among the Democrats uh, holds. And it, I have every reason to believe that it will, because it's a pretty strong lead at this point. Um but you touch upon something here, which is which I've it's kind of been disturbing me lately, and obviously disturbs you as well, is that the Republicans are, in Marjorie Taylor Greene being an extreme example, but Republicans in general are clearly playing by a different rule book these days. It's a rule book that, as far as I can tell, is devoid of any moral behavior. Um, they are brutal. They are obnoxious, uh, and utterly shameless. And you know, many Republican politicians are seem to be anyways, unfazed by allegations of shady financial dealings. They pay virtually no price for making fun of people with health issues or vir pay virtually no price for deviant sexual behavior. Uh, in fact, deviant sexual behavior is almost a rite of passage. And, you know, if we look back at candidate Trump back in 2016, I mean, he's the one who proudly pointed in the direction of his genitals and said he has no problem down there. And this is Let's face it, many Republicans, they preach from the Bible of hatred and intolerance, and it's not even a dog whistle anymore. Time and time again, you see Republican candidates posing for pictures with people that flash the white power symbol. And all this time, uh, they are nevertheless embraced by devout evangelicals. And it works. I mean, it, it just works. Yet here we are, many Republicans turn around and shame Democrats for their bad behavior. They hold Democrats to a moral standard, and that sticks as well. Democrats are always seem to be on the defense. They, they're called baby killers, COVID tyrants. Uh, they're painted with the broad brush of wokeism, hatred. So my question is this, how can you, or any Democrat for that matter, possibly defend yourself against a level of this, this level of blatant, shameless hypocrisy? You know, that's one of the larger fights in our campaign, or, or for me in general, pushing back on disinformation and radicalism. It's mm -hmm. dangerous. We see what it leads to. You know, we have to push back on that and let people know that service and honor still matter in this country. Mm 
-hmm. they still do integrity still matters in this country Mm -hmm. you know and i have the uh I have that personal courage to be able to stand up to those like green who are willing to, you know, spout these, let's just call them what they are lies and misinformation. Right. We got to push back on that. And we got to bring it back to the issues that people care about. And it's about kitchen table issues. Right. And when I'm out having those conversations with Northwest Georgians, you know, one of the things that I've always done is I try to meet people where they are, Mm -hmm. no matter where that is if I strongly disagree or not, I try to meet them there. And we have the conversation from there, an open and honest conversation about the topics. And you'd be surprised to know that a lot of people who have, you know, bought into some of the things that, you know, the radical right is pushing. When you sit down and have those tough conversations, you know, they're willing to, to listen. And that's where we have to get back to in Congress, you know, negotiating in good faith. You know, that's one of the big problems that I've seen you know, in, in, in our politics, you know, the white hot rhetoric, you know, that has nothing to do with anything that's going on around the kitchen table for Americans. Yeah. You know, these are all these distractions. We've got to get away from that and start talking about the issues. And that's what I do here in Georgia. I talk about affordable health care. I talk about a safe environment to raise our children. You know, mm-hmm. I talk about infrastructure here in our district, you know, what it's going to take to attract larger businesses to our communities, mm-hmm. how to tackle the housing issue here in Northwest Georgia and in America in general, our veterans issues. These are the things that people care about. We got to start having those honest conversations and stop treating each other as enemies simply because we have a different political view. We need two strong parties in this country that are both rooted in reality. So your your attempt there then is to bring people back to the kitchen table issues, as you said, because those are the things that really matter uh, to people at the end of the day. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. People are receptive to it. Yeah. But here's the thing that was, uh, it, 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 uh, last week we talked to uh, Dr. Michael Carson, who's a professor at the University of Denver's uh, Graduate School of Professional Psychology, and we talked a lot about hatred, and he quoted Aldous Huxley in one of his writings. So I went back and looked at all Aldous Huxley's writings and um, came up with this quote right here that says, There are many people for whom hate and rage pay a higher dividend of immediate satisfaction than love. And in this passage from Huxley, he goes on to observe how this satisfaction brings a sense of feeling good. And in turn, this sense of feeling good brings another sense of righteous indignation. And it's a self-fulfilling loop of dread and ultimate destruction. So in the short run, it works. But in the long run, there is a tremendous social debt that gets built up. And I guess if I were reading what you're saying here is let's talk about that social debt that we're building up. Let's stop talking about the uh, the things that uh, the hatred that makes us feel good in the moment. Uh, did I catch that right? You got it exactly right. You, you, we, we've really got to get back to talking about what matters. Mm-hmm. Get away from those distractions. And yes, I get exactly what the doctor is saying that, you know, in the world we live in with the 24 hour news cycle and social media and people living in their own echo chambers, you know, you get that quick dopamine hit that makes you feel good. But at the end of the day, what does that do for you? What does it do for your bottom line? You know, is that paying off student loan debts? Is that tackling the climate crisis? Right. You know, when you really, really drill down on what it is that matter to people and people are, you know, worried about inflation, the price they're paying at the pump, 
the prices they're paying in the grocery stores. These are the issues. Everything else is a distraction. Yeah. These are the conversations that I have on a daily basis. And yes, it's a hard thing, but we're at a point in this country where a hard thing is what we must do if democracy is to survive. Well, I think at some point you just have to wave some pictures of, of the January 6th insurrection, you know, and, and say, this is, this is where we're heading folks, you know, and absolutely. Yeah. No, I agree. I get to the point in those conversations where I don't pull punches. I let people know what's really at stake here, you know, and, and what's really at stake here in a 2022 election. If we don't hold the line, 2022 is a dry run for an authoritarian takeover in 24. Mm-hmm. And when you put it in that type of stark contrast, people start to people start to get it and see what's really at stake. That's a that's a really good way of putting it. 2022 is a dry run for an authoritarian uh, type of uh, turn in 2024. It really is. That's not hyper hyperbole. Yeah. Yeah. It's scary. Well, let's talk about something that that has affected us recently as covid. And this is kind of a, I find more and more as time goes on, COVID is more of a metaphor. You know, so here we are, the U.S. wants to be number one. Well, unfortunately, we are number one in terms of uh, infection rates and death. And um, yeah, and this is not what I would call a shining example for the rest of the world. And yet it is. it was here that, you know, we developed the vaccines. And so the people that accuse China of manufacturing a virus, which there might be some traction to that, but nevertheless, the people that accuse China of manufacturing a virus are dead set against taking a vaccine that was manufactured in America. And, and I have to go back to what my parents lived through. They, they were too young to serve in World War II, but they were old enough to remember it as younger people. And they said that what happened in this country is that everybody pulled together. Everybody pitched in and did what was necessary to get through it. And here we are. COVID has killed more than more Americans than World War II and in less time. And we all know that the only way to get through this thing is for everybody to work to work together. Yet we seem to be in an epidemic of selfishness, to, for lack of a better term, or perhaps an epidemic of anarchy. Do you feel that uh, in light of all this, do you feel that our government is at fault for some of this behavior and and um has our government failed? Uh, has has our government failed at all in our response to COVID? You know, I think when I look back at the beginning of the pandemic, how it was politicized, mm-hmm. which it should have never been. I mean, this is a public health issue. We should have trusted the science, and you, and you've got to give the previous administration some credit for getting a vaccine out in record time. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to give credit where credit's due there. However, you also have to give credit for that same administration for spreading misinformation and disinformation. Mm-hmm. Now that we're two years into this pandemic, and it's still a pandemic, you know, it's frustrating that, you know, people have decided to buy into the misinformation and disinformation. And there are people who were sincerely, you know, worried about what the vaccine could do to them. Mm-hmm. There was some sincerity to that. But at this point, the science has been proven. I mean, the vaccines are safe and they're your best chance at, you know, avoiding death. This is, you know, it, you know it's really, it's frustrating because I understand COVID yeah. fatigue and I understand right. that people are so ready to get over this. But, you know, the level of disinformation that was out there around the virus was, you know, 
was unnecessary. You know, we've lost a lot of our brothers and, you know, the vaccination rates here in Georgia are still pretty, pretty low. And, you know, we're still to this day having people die from this virus. And it's, it's completely unnecessary and handled a lot better, but for, you know, certain politicians and disinformation, it's just something that, you know, it's sad. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, you, you kind of broke up on me there, so that's why I kind of paused there. Um, oh, sorry. No, that's that's fine. The um, but let's go back to uh, something that you said earlier about science, and and this is where you know I I'm I'm an engineer. I was trained as an engineer, worked as an engineer my whole life, so I'm a big fan of science. But I believe the problem is much deeper than COVID. It goes really to a deep sense of mistrust for science. And the funny thing is that America was built on science. If you look at the history. Most of the wonderful luxuries we enjoy in life were discovered, developed, and manufactured right here in the U.S. by people that were devoted to the art of science. So what do you think we could do to reverse this trend and tamp down the flames of anti-science? I mean, it's certainly anti-American, but what can we do to tamp down the flames of anti-science? Yeah, I think it all plays into these this culture work, these, this politics of grievance mm-hmm. um, that's out there. I mean, you know, if you look at our tech industry, we lead the world. And that's because of science. So I, I fully agree that, you know, this country has benefited from science. This country has benefited from medicine. Again, we've got to get back to a place where we're negotiating in good faith and we're having our arguments based on facts, right. not grievances, you know, right. Well, it's uh, we're having our argument sometimes based on alternative facts, right? So, oh, yeah, whatever that means, you yeah, know. yeah, whatever that means. Well, uh, let's talk about voting rights because this is something that that's, that's near and dear to my heart. And Georgia has mm-hmm. been in the news lately. I think uh, it was uh, Governor Kemp of Georgia signed into law. I think it was SB two hundred two. SB two hundred two, right? Yeah, which is a ninety-eight page omnibus bill that seems to have completely overhauled the voting procedures in Georgia. And it's such a large bill with uh, so many moving parts that it's easy to overlook some important changes. And I got to confess, I haven't read the whole thing. But I did spot one sentence at the beginning of Section 2, which focused on the motivation behind the bill. And it read, quote, The General Assembly finds and declares that following the 2018 and 2020 elections, there was a significant lack of confidence in Georgia election systems, with many electors concerned about allegations of rampant voter suppression and many electors concerned about allegations of, ramp- of rampant voter fraud, unquote. And so for me, the operative words there are concerned about allegations. It seems like a very flimsy premise onto which uh, hangs significant changes to the laws, uh, to the voting laws. And there's this famous clause about making it illegal to hand out water bottles to people standing in line any closer than 150 feet to the polling place. Uh, mm. And there's a lot of other niggling mm. details in this in this SB 202. But what concerns do you have regarding the voting laws in the U.S. in general? And would you use it as motivation to support something like the uh, For the People Act? I was born in Troy, Alabama, the birthplace of John Lewis. And John Lewis devoted his life to voting rights. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look at bills like SB 202 here in Georgia, it's just it's a funny thing because the Republican legislature put those laws in effect. Mm-hmm. We audited the laws and I'm an auditor three times a Republican secretary of state certified the election. Mm-hmm. 
and said that there was no fraud, no widespread fraud in Georgia or anywhere else. This was the most secure election of our lifetime. Mm-hmm. You know, but I think what has happened is that some on the right see a trend where when more people vote, they lose. Yeah. And that's scary for them. Mm-hmm. You know, when you want to move ballots inside or the ballot boxes or drop boxes inside of businesses that mm-hmm. close at certain times, you know, to make it harder for certain people to vote. Right. When you want to punish, as you said, people handing out water, because let's say that we had people standing in line here in Georgia for 11 hours to cast their ballot, you know, for what other reason than to suppress the vote? Are you changing the rules that you implemented? I don't get it. So I support the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. I think, you know, we need to, we need to protect the right to vote. And I would go one step further and say, we need to make a holiday yeah. for people to vote. That's, yeah. It's, yeah, that's that's we need one, to be making it easier to vote, not harder. Yeah, that's one of the uh, tenets inside the For the People Act. But to think about the For the People Act is that it it federalizes a lot of these voting rules, and there's quite a few people on, on I would say, dare I say, on both sides of the aisle that are somewhat concerned about that because it may be an overreaction. I don't know what all the uh, what all the concerns are, but. Uh, federalizing the votes, uh, the voting uh, process in this country, although it is constitutional, if you if you look at the <clears throat> certain passages of the Constitution, that, they, that the Congress can do this, but should they do it, and should they federalize the uh, voting uh, voting rules? You know, I think I think we should. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, when you turn when you're trying to turn over electoral commissions to partisan politicians, mm-hmm. and when you want to say. And we reserve the right to throw out votes that, you know, outcomes that we don't like. You know, I think it's I think the federal government can and should step in in instances of that like that, because that's what's happening here. You've got a lot of QAnon believers and radical right followers who are, you know, running to oversee elections now. You know, people who supported the big lie. I think we're in a, at a dangerous inflection point here in our country. You know, that's, mm-hmm. I think this is a point where the federal government does step up and Congress steps up and realizes a lot of these things and makes it to where you can't change the rules simply because you don't like the outcomes. Yeah. 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 That's, that's one of the parts that's scary about me. They talk a lot about uh, voting rights or, or I should say voter fraud. But what really happens and what people don't talk about so much is what I would call election fraud where a lot of the state governments are toying with the idea with various different bills of doing just that, of being able to override the results of a presidential election and send a different set of electors because they have quote unquote concerns about exactly. uh, voter fraud. Uh, yeah. That to me just basically says that, you know, the, the, the states have been given uh, by, you know, originally in the constitution been given the right to uh, way to to run their own elections, run elections, right? But um, you know, if they can't handle it, or or if these types of things where states are being taken over by uh, people of of a political party that uh, have super majorities that can override votes, then um, you know you have to wonder, you know, whether you have to, at some level, federalize maybe not the whole thing, but at least establish some sort of a floor 
that states. Yeah, have I, I want to be clear on that. I'm not saying federalize all elections at mm-hmm. all. Just yeah. be clear that that's not what I'm saying. But there needs to be guidelines yeah. and rules in place so that you can't just come in and arbitrarily change the rules just because you don't like the outcome of the election. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm glad you clarified that, too, because that, that's a very important thing. Have you ever heard of this organization called Move to Amend? I have not. Okay, well, <clears throat> you might want to hear about or you might want to look them up. It's movetoamend.org, uh, all one word, M-O-V-E-T-O-A-M-E-N-D.org. And uh, we talked to, talked to them on the podcast in December of 2020. It's been some time ago, but uh, their whole purpose is uh, to uh, reject the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling in the Citizens United uh, case back in 2010 and uh, make an amendment, an actual amendment, the 28th Amendment to be exact, to our uh, Constitution that would firmly establish that money is not speech, that humans and not corporations are persons entitled to constitutional rights. And they are actually trying to recruit individuals like yourself to, um, to you know, wave the banner for them and, and, um, and work with them. So, um, yeah, I recommend you take a look, movetoamend.org. It sounds like and Citizens United, is that? Yeah, that whole the whole purpose there is to get rid of, uh, to end Citizens United. And, you know, Citizens United, just for background, was a Supreme Court ruling, I believe it was 2010, which basically, insofar as the First Amendment is concerned, equated corporations with individuals as far as freedom of speech goes. So that the ruling there, uh, the, the logic there was that corporations, if they are people, ent- entities unto themselves, they have the right to um, speak with all the voice that they have and right. um, basically buy as much advertisement as they want to, uh, maybe not contribute directly to a politician, but through doing it through PACs or just basically buying commercial time on uh, TV, radio, newspaper, and um, exactly. overwhelming a, uh, 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 the opposition to either a person or an issue. Yeah, we have to give the, uh, I think trying to reverse that that decision in the Supreme Court is extremely difficult to do, but it might be less difficult to actually pass an amendment that says, hey, you know, this uh, this ruling has to be overruled because it's now unconstitutional. Yeah, I mean, with the current political climate, everything's difficult. Yeah. But yeah. again, a difficult thing is what we must do in this time. Yeah. Well, that's, this is the time for it. Uh, we had that insurrection last year. In fact, I want to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, you gave us some impressions of your of the insurrection on January 6th. Could you go a little bit deeper into what you feel drove this insurrection? And more importantly, perhaps, is to comment on not only the dangers that it presents to us today, but are the forces that are behind that insurrection still at play? Are we really seeing like uh, just another beer hall pooch? Or is this... Um, you know, is this a continuing thing or was this just a one-off thing, do you believe? Now, again, when I say, when I said earlier that, you know, people who put on suicide vests and killed some of my friends overseas, mm-hmm. you know, that doesn't happen in a vacuum. That type of radicalization doesn't happen in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. You know, think about what it takes to get a person there. Yeah. So that and when you equate that to what's going on here in our country and how we got to January 6th, the level of disinformation and misinformation. And you know, a lot of that started you know, right here in Georgia with Newt Gingrich. It's, we look back that far and look at where our politics took a turn and it became about power. We weren't, we're no longer talking about policies. Right. We were talking about politics of grievance. 
we're talking about conspiracy theories. Yeah. You know, and a significant portion of our population has been radicalized by things like QAnon, yeah. which Marjorie Taylor Greene is a believer in. And if you look at it, really, we have these far right wing news outlets that continue to push this and they continue to push the big lie yeah. and it inflames people's passions. And that leads to unnecessary violence and death. And that's what we saw on January 6th. And that's the exact type of thing we need to be pushing back on. Yeah. Again, that's a large, the larger part of my campaign is pushing back on misinformation and disinformation. We have to really look at where a lot of this is coming from. I mean, if you look back at 2016, you know, Putin had a say in the 2016 election with the amount of propaganda and misinformation and things that he was injecting into the bloodstream that people were buying. And it was being pushed by the radical right as well. So when people don't know what to believe because of the zone has been flooded with all of this misinformation, you know, that leads to radicalization. And that in and of itself leads to things like January 6th. You know, there's nothing short of our democracy that's on the line right now. And that's what I'm fighting to save. And it, it isn't just our democracy either, because, you know, the, the forces that drove this insurrection are, uh, we're seeing it on a global scale. We're seeing similar turns toward authoritarianism in, in places exactly. like Poland, Hungary, Turkey. Uh, Germany has seen a sudden rise in the AFD party. That's the alternative for Germany, which advocates mm -hmm. for anti-immigration policies, embraced hostility toward Islam, and broken decades-old anti-Nazi taboos. Uh, the Vox Party in Spain has similar aspirations. So what's happening in America is not just limited to America. I mean, the whole world is suddenly becoming a lot more scary. And uh, so as a representative, you know, you're going to be dealing with a lot of these issues, inter international issues. What's your plan of attack and how to, how to go about addressing these issues on a worldwide basis? You know, as we're having this conversation, you know, the largest attack on the European continent is taking place right now in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Russia, you know, largest attack since September of 1939. This tilt towards authoritarianism, it's dangerous. And we've got to push back on it. And I, and I for one, if elected to Congress, will be a voice for democracy against authoritarianism. You know, we must maintain our democracy and defend democracy abroad. This tilt toward authoritarianism, you know, Trump and his love for Putin, who he's calling a genius, and his penchant for authoritarianism, you know, he's, right. oh, Putin's great. He's a genius. Look at what he did in Ukraine. You know, that's, that's yeah. dangerous talk. Yeah, that is. It's extremely dangerous. Um, I know that you have to get going pretty soon, though, but I just had uh, one more question for you. Uh, what can people do to learn more and contribute and perhaps get involved in your campaign? A good way to get involved is go to www.marcusgeorgia, all spelled out, uh, .com, and Take a look at our issues page. Uh, we have an events page where we do a town hall once a month. You can sign up for that. It's a virtual town hall via Zoom. Uh, go in, sign up, come and listen to us talk about the issues. Uh, if you'd like to volunteer for our campaign, we're taking on volunteers to do phone banking. And if you're in the district, you know we'd love to have you come out and knock some doors with us uh, as well. So you can sign up and volunteer for you know whatever it is that you know you'd like to do in this campaign you know i go out and knock doors and talk to people and i enjoy those conversations that's my favorite part of campaigning actually is talking mm. with the people of northwest georgia uh also you know if you're outside of the district and you'd like to donate to our campaign you can 
there's a donation link there uh, through Act Blue, you know, or you can send us a check. We have an address on the website. Okay. Every little bit helps. Okay. We're really in a fight for democracy against the radical right and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Well put. And uh, unfortunately, right as you were saying your, your website uh, address there, your voice cut out. So I'll just repeat that. That's MarcusForGeorgia.com. All spelled out, all one word, M-A-R-C-U-S-F-O-R-G-E-O-R-G-I-A, MarcusForGeorgia.com. Great. Uh, That's we, it. Okay. We've been talking with Marcus Flowers, who is running for the U.S. congressional seat in the 14th District in the beautiful state of Georgia. Marcus, thank you for joining us today, and good luck with your campaign. Dan, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure being with you. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our webpage at democracyonthemove.org slash contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Rey Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in again next week. 